Okay, nice to see you all. Um, I haven't seen you for like, I don't know, it feels like a couple of weeks. So I have been here last week, wasn't I? I haven't said anything to you. Um, okay, so we're carrying on with our Blueprint series. Now today, I need to forewarn you, I'm going to say a lot, but actually not say much in the process of saying a lot. In other words, what you'll come away with was, is, what was he going on about? But I need to like fill it out with lots of other information because what we're going to look at today, as we home in on the Tabernacle of David, it's, it's a, there's a lot in it. And so I've got to kind of say a lot about, give you some background and things to lead to what we're going to. Um, Okay, I just want to start with this. This morning when I was uh, praying and uh, meditating, I felt the Lord say, I've got to give this as a prophetic word. I don't know if it's anyone in here or anyone listening to this, but it's basically this. King David, okay, was anointed by Samuel the prophet. And then as you will know, if you know your Bible story very well, that he then had to do a runner because Saul, the king at the time, was not too impressed by that. And uh, so, so King David then uh, spent time in a cave. And when he was in this cave, I think it's the cave of Adullam or some other place, all of these people started defecting to him. And, and if you read, I think, in First Chronicles, and first, uh, yeah, first Chronicles there's, there's a lot of people that came to him. It wasn't just 400 malcontented people that were in debt and stuff. There were military leaders and all sorts that recognized David as the king or potential to be king. And so they all hung out with him in the cave. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine a cave full of guys? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, but, and smelly, yeah, but eventually <laughs> David left the cave and eventually they took the citadel and then, you know, that's the city of David, which is today. So Mount Zion and all that sort of stuff. And the prophetic word, it was initially it was given to me a long time ago and I felt God say, you need to pass it on. The prophetic word for me was, don't be a guy that just stayed in the cave. That there's going to come a time where you've got to get out of the cave with all the guys and all the potential that you potentially have and actually move into the things that God has called you to do. Don't be 20 years down the line that was like, oh, I remember such and such. Yeah, he was that guy that all those people like went to, but he just was a guy that was in a cave. And in the end, we just kind of left him to it. That's not what God wants for you. Some of you need to get out of the cave and start walking in the things that God has called you into. And by doing that, then you can take the city and take the citadel and have the city of David. Because if David didn't take that city, then he wouldn't, well, he would have never done all the things that we're talking about. He wouldn't become the shadow and the type of the Messiah. Okay? So don't be that guy that just was somebody, was going to be someone important, but then they just end up being a guy in a cave with lots of people around him. Okay? And I need to say, especially for the young people, don't be, don't be that guy that everyone loved. Oh, he was such a great guy or such a great girl, you know, just, just loved hanging around with them all the time. But then that person just never moves on. Stay where they are, staying in the cave. And 20 or 30 years may go by, and it's like you meet that person again, but they're still exactly the same as they were 20 or 30 years ago. And here's the sad thing. They still think they're that cool guy, but everyone's moved on. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Amen. Does that cheered you up? Jolly good. All right. Okay. So um, I remember years ago, uh, Sandra Goodman, sorry about Give us a wave, Sandra. There you go. See, she, she is an awesome woman of God. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, I, when I was young, I was probably about 18, 19, that I went over to Elim Church to learn how to do evangelism. Because I was just saved, so I didn't know anything. And, uh, and I remember sitting at lunchtime, sat in this big, big hall, and, and Sandra was on the other side. And she was just gently praying away to herself. 
and I was sat there trying to eat my sandwiches and I, and I could just sense the presence of God so strongly. And I was like, I need to, I need to speak to this woman. Like, what's going on here? So I went over to her and said, hey, you know, I've just really, really enjoyed you praying there. I can really sense the presence of God. And she said, yeah, okay. Uh, and then she started talking to me. And then we ended up, found out that we were quite close, lived quite close together. So uh, I caught the train back home. And then as I was about to walk past her home, she said, hey, what I've, got is, I've got something which is my Bible college. It's, it's this box of tapes that I'd like you to, to borrow off me. And uh, do you remember that, Sandra? Yeah. And it had like some great heroes of faith in there. But one of them was uh, a couple of K-sets, for those that are old enough to remember. And I'm like, what's a K-set? Um, um, there was one by a guy called Matt Schwartz. Do you remember Matt Schwartz? Yeah. And he was a Messianic Jewish guy. I don't know what's happened to him. I haven't heard of him since. Um, but he, he really spoke about the Tabernacle of David, and, but only on a, on a small element. And that was... That this, the, the understanding, the exuberance that we should have in our worship and, and that f- almost that frivolity that we have with God. Because I, I realise, I think it's in Zechariah um, that, or Habakkuk, where it says that God rejoices over his people. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean oh, he just rejoices over his people. It means he dances and spins and whirls like a top. And he's like, woo! He's like really excited. And we're like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And he's really going for it. And when I heard that teaching, it just released something in me. And I was like, yeah, man. I'm just going to go. I used to go around like doing all this kind of stuff and spinning around, dancing. I used to be crazy when I was younger. All right? You think, are you crazy now? I was really crazy then. Hallelujah. I was like a wild stallion, but with no training. I was the worst thing ever. But anyway, but that really released something to me that really helped me as a Christian. And, and, and the whole Tabernacle of David thing is such a joyous thing because it is coming into the joy of the Lord and the joy of praise and the joy of worship and the joy of intimacy with him as well. Hallelujah. And so understanding this Tabernacle of David, we've got some pictures. Can I put a picture up for me, please? So you saw this last time. Understanding the Tabernacle of David and all that it symbolises helped me grasp um, really some fundamental truths from the New Testament. Because do you remember last, last time I spoke on this, we looked at the guy called Obed-Edom, yes. who was the Gentile that was allowed to do things that could never be allowed to happen under the, under the Torah. And so the Tabernacle of David is really, uh, next one across please, we'll come back to that one in a minute, is the Tabernacle of David really was quite revolutionary in its time and reveals something to us of the kingdom to get to come and also what we're in now. Now in Acts 15 verses 14 to 18, just, this is from last time, it said, Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tabernacle. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. So it's a very unique thing. It's very specific. And it is about a culmination of Jews and Gentiles coming together in their own unique way and worshipping God. And it's, it's quite a fascinating subject. So we're just going to look at a little bit of that today. So today I've got to do a bit of theology, okay? I know theology is not that sexy, it's not that exciting, but hey, we've got to do it sometime, right? I can't have people saying, Chris, you never teach us anything. Okay, so I'm going to teach you some stuff today. All right. So first of all, when we, when we come to our, our Old Testament, we need to understand that, and I'm sure you know this, but it's full of lots of shadows and types. So I'll give you just a few here to throw some out. You have the first Adam, which is the old man. And then you have the second Adam, which is Christ, the new man. Hallelujah. Sorry? The last 
Last Adam, sorry, it does actually say that in my notes, beg your pardon. Yeah, I, what do I say? Second Adam. I'm always saying second Adam. If I say second Adam, go do it here. Last, last, last. Okay, right, I'll get it eventually. So you'd think it'd be easy, wouldn't it? First Adam, last Adam. So anyway, so you've got Jesus, uh, sorry, the first Adam, the old guy, and then the last Adam, which is Jesus. We have natural birth. And now we have spiritual birth. We have natural circumcision. And praise the Lord, now we have spiritual circumcision. Oh, amen from the man there. Woo! Um, there's the natural walk. Then there's a the spiritual walk. There's physical weapons. Now we have spiritual weapons. There was an earthly tabernacle. Now there is, well, there always has been, a heavenly tabernacle. You had a physical priesthood. Now we are a spiritual priesthood. There were physical sacrifices. Now we offer spiritual sacrifices. Um, there's a physical Jerusalem. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. There's an earthly Mount Zion. There's a heavenly Mount Zion. There's the law written on stone. Now the law is written on our hearts. There's the letter of the Torah. And then the spirit of the Torah. There is physical death and there is spiritual death. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Okay, so there's lots of really cool stuff there. And the Apostle Paul, he gives uh, a lot of these New Testament ideas. He, gives, he explains them as terms of allegory, type, examples, figures, patterns, schoolmasters, shadow and similitude. Okay, when he's talking about these things from the Old Testament. So now we need to go into a little bit of background about the tabernacle of David and the historical backdrop to that. So Mount Zion, uh, if anyone, has anyone been to Israel? Yeah, yeah okay, a few of you. Good, good. Lots of others. You've got to do some pilgrimage, guys. You need to do pilgrimage to Israel, uh, which we're going there next year in May, if anyone wants to come along to that. It's a church thing. Um, okay, so let's get your Bible out, and we're going to look at Psalm 87, verses 1 to 3. Because you see, you might think, well, why do I care about Mount Zion? Because it's, your whole Bible is full of it. And if you don't really understand this whole concept of what Mount Zion is and what it represents, you'll always read your Bible in the dark. On this issue um, because the tabernacle of David raises lots of eschatological issues eschatological as in end times theology okay the study of end times that's what it means eschaton means end of days okay right so uh, verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 87 on the holy mountain stands the city he built the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all of Jacob's towns Glorious things are told of you, O city of God. Now, the city of God, what city is that? It's Jerusalem, okay? But here it's being called the city of Zion. So you'll see this quite a lot in your Bible, especially things like Isaiah, etc. He will refer to, um, uh, to Jerusalem as Ariel, or he will refer to it as Zion. Okay, so these are all names that you'll get for, for, for Jerusalem. Because the centrality of Jerusalem is is Zion itself. Now, Zion is a type. The word Zion in the Hebrew comes from two root meanings. One is desert and the other is castle. Okay, And this is something I love about God, is that he, he, isn't, he doesn't brag. He doesn't need to show off. You know, when Jesus was born, when the incarnation, the most historic thing that ever happened in all of living history, right, what did he do? Did he, did he do it to some empress daughter, emperor's daughter and make her pregnant so everybody would know about it? No. He found a little bunch of peasants, Joseph and Mary, in the middle of nowhere and had no, no one knew who they were. There were nobodies, complete and absolute nobodies. And Mary was, um, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she gave birth to the Messiah. 
But then when, when, when the Messiah was born, then what happened then? God sent his angels. You can imagine the angels. Right, well, where are we going, God? Where are we going? I want to send you to the shepherds. What? The shepherds? Those people, they're like the lowest of the low of the social strata. Yeah, I want you to go down there. Because that's how God is. He is humble. He is gentle. He is lowly. So Jesus' birth was, was very humble and it was very lowly. But I've got news for you. When he returns, everyone's going to know about it. Everybody will see it. They may not have seen the first coming, but they will see the second coming. And that's how God is. This whole thing of Zion in the desert, but it's a castle. And isn't it so often that you know, we, 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 get, we think that sometimes um, God's in the mighty anointed woman or man of God. Or it's in the mighty praise and worship. Or it's in the storms. Or it's in the earthquake. But actually, no. Often God is in the secret place, in the still, small, quiet voice that is within us. This is uh, like us internally, like a Mount Zion. It's not, it's not somewhere where everybody wants to go. In fact, going out into the desert to find Jesus is the last place that most people would want to go. It's like, can't he come to the city? Can't he come to Pharaoh or, or to Portsmouth? Why do I have to go out to the desert to find him? Because that's how God is. So Mount Zion itself, the name Zion, also reveals something of the nature of God. Hallelujah. So Mount Zion within the city also speaks of a more exclusive place today for us within the church. So I've been talking about inner court life, uh, outer court life, and then the centrality of temple life over this series. And God is really wanting his church to come back to the centrality of what it's all about. In the Psalms, you have Psalms called the Psalms of Ascents. Okay, you'll see that in the titles of the Psalms. They're the Psalms that were sang and read and prayed as they ascended up Mount Zion. Because there's a place of preparation. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, it's that place of preparedness as we come up into the presence of God. And God is calling his people to come back to the heart of what it's all about. You know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. God is calling his people to come back to the centrality of what it's all about. We're so often busy with inner court life. You know, all the Christian stuff that we have going on in the inner courts. But actually God is saying, guys, I want you to, you're priests. You're priests of God. I want you to come right in to the holy of holies as we've been singing today. Come right into that place. You see, when Moses was in that holy place. He had to ascend the mountain, didn't he? Mount Sinai. He got to the top. But when he got to the top of the mountain and he came into the presence of God, he came down with something that literally changed the world forever. How about you and I, that when we go up into the mountain of God and we go into the presence of Almighty God, and sometimes he will give you tablets of revelation that you can come down that mountain and it can affect you, it can change you, it can affect your family, it can affect even the nation and nations. Yeah? But you can't get that unless you first go up to come down. So, is there a Zion in heaven? Now let's have a look, shall we? So let's turn to Revelation 14. And here it's where we start to tread on some feet, so I do apologise. Okay, now listen, I'm going to make this very clear. Don't come up to me at the end and say, wow, I think this and I think that. Right, because I don't have time to go into all of the detail behind some of the statements that I'm going to make here, okay? So, um, 
If you, want, if you really want to get into it, listen to my course on Book of Revelation. It's a 79 podcast series, and it's be out in a book, or part one of it will be out in a book very soon. And you can go through all that then, and you can look at all the texts and all the scriptures. So, verse chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. It says, Next in my vision, I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by 144,000 people, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So they've got the name of God written on their foreheads, okay? So bear in mind that the mark of the beast is on the forehead and on the hand, okay? Where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy, where God says you are to have the word of God on your forehead and on your hand as a perpetual sign of the covenant between me and you. That's why Jews wear phylacteries. So the mark of the beast is something that is a blasphemy to the God of Israel and the people of Israel, okay? So these guys, they've been sealed with a mark on their foreheads. This is the 144,000. Verse 2. I heard a sound coming out of heaven like the sound of the rushing waters or a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing on their harps. Now, by the sounds of it, that's some serious volume for harps, okay? It's like loads of them. It said they sang, this is the 144,000, they sang a new song before the throne in the presence of the four living creatures and the elders, a song which no one could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about the 144,000, and the Holy Spirit's saying to me, don't go there, so I'm not going to go there. I'll leave, it at, I'll leave it at that. But what I will say is that the 144,000 are not on the earth at this point in the text. But Chris, you just said they're on Mount Zion. Yeah, but it also says in verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne in the presence of the four living creatures and the elders, a song which no one could learn except the 144,000. In other words, they were in the most holy place where the throne of God is, where the cherubim and the seraphim are seated, uh, that cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, where the 24 elders are sat round about, they're throwing down their crowns before the king of kings. So these 144,000 are not on the earth, but they're in heaven at this time, and they are singing a song that only they can learn. And they are the first fruits of the salvation of Israel. Because at the fullness of the times of the Gentiles, all Israel shall be saved. Read that in the Bible. It's in the book of Romans. Read it. It's a great book. Okay? So it's all there. So at the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, when it's come to its complete end, and that the time has ended for the Gentiles, then God will save all Israel. Paul makes this mystery clear in, in Romans. He says, there has come a partial hardening of the people of Israel. This is a mystery. Their hardening of their hearts has been for our benefit so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. But then once we're all grafted in, then God will bring in Israel. And he says, if their hardening has been for, for, to our benefit, how much more will it be but life beyond the grave when they come back? Amen. So you have Israel. They were hardened. The Gentiles, the wild olives were grafted into the natural tree. But we always produce wild olives. That's, we can't produce natural olives, so the fruit that we produce is always Gentile fruit. And you should rejoice in that, because that's how God has made you. And then at the end of the age, he will bring in the Jews that will complete again. So you've got this kind of like Jewish sandwich. Jews, Gentiles, Jews, okay? Now, why is this important? I didn't know this, but this was on a gardening program on Radio 3. I wasn't listening to it. Somebody told me, in case you're thinking, what are you doing listening to Radio 3? I think it was Radio 4, actually. 
And, and they basically said, this gardener was saying, did you know that on, on an olive tree, what you do is you take off certain branches and you lay them down by the tree so that then you can graft in other elements into this tree. But after a period of time, if you don't graft the original back branches back onto the tree, the tree will eventually die. Yeah. So whatever your thoughts are on Israel, I've got news for you. They have to come back in because if they don't, it ain't going to go well for you and me. Amen. That's why at the end of the age, at the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. Uh, again, if anyone wants to have a chat to me about that, why not buy my book, The Biblical Importance of Israel? Because it's only £5 on Amazon and it'll answer all your questions. Hallelujah. Or most of them anyway. And then you can come up to me afterwards and stuff. Now, what I find amazing, so anyway, so yeah, so Mount Zion's in heaven, but that's only one scripture, and you could say, well, Chris, is, well, that's, that's not really a great scripture. Well, let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, where countless angels have gathered for the festival, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God himself, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the upright brought to perfection. Now, this is what really excites me. You see, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are praying an eschatological prayer. What does that mean? It means that we're praying into something that will bring usher in something at the very end of days. In heaven, you have God the Father on the throne, on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, over the promised land, over the nations. But we have been praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus comes back, because he is coming back, and he's coming back soon, and he's coming back sooner than when I first started this sermon. Amen? So he's coming back soon. All right? And what will happen is, is Jesus is going to rule and reign from Mount Zion over Jerusalem, over the promised land, over the nations. So you see the mirroring of what's in heaven manifest on the earth through his son. Hallelujah. And then, just when you thought it couldn't possibly get any better than that, then suddenly at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, okay, where does that thousand years come from? I'll come back to that in a minute. When at the end of the thousand years of Christ, then God will bring this world to an end. He'll destroy it with fire, or some people just say it will be burnt up with fire and then renewed, and some say it will be made new, a new heaven and new earth. But then the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and lands on the new earth, okay? Not, not, not some kind of spiritual icky place, a solid earth, okay? And where is when Jesus was ruling and reigning on Mount Zion, you had Jesus and the Holy Spirit on the earth. When the new Jerusalem comes out and the new heaven and new earth, you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit living and dwelling with man. So even the millennial reign in all its glory and Jesus coming back is still only a shadow of what is fully to come at the very end of the age. Hallelujah. It's exciting. It is exciting. Where does the thousand-year reign come from? It's only mentioned once in the whole book of Revelation. Of course, a lot of people go, oh, well, that's all down to your interpretation. It's a thousand years. It could be this. It could be that. It could be symbolic. It could be literal. Yes, good point. Except 
that it is not a Christian idea, it's a Jewish idea. And it comes from the Babylonian Talmud, which was written in about AD 400. We go, but Chris, the book of Revelation was written long before that. Yes, it was. Good for you. You're clever. But actually, the, 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 the Babylonian Talmud is basically a collection of that which was known orally during the days of the temple. Okay, so this whole idea of a, a day being a thousand years and a thousand years being a day comes from the Psalms, and it was considered that from Jewish thinking, that man would live or have his rule and reign for 6,000 years, six being the number of man. The 7,000th year is the seventh day of the week, which is the Sabbath. Jesus will return and will bring a Shabbat to the whole of the nations for a 1,000 years. And then when we get to the 8,000th year, which is known as the eighth day, or the day which Jesus rose again from the dead on, or new creation day, then on the 8,000th year, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be born again. And then we get to live with our God forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. That's exciting stuff. It is for me anyway. Now, let's, thank you. let's turn now to Exodus 15. Bear in mind, at Exodus 15, Israel was not really a nation as such. They were just wandering through the wilderness. They didn't know about what was coming for them. 450 years later, when David would take the citadel from the Jebusites. In Exodus 15, verses 17 to 18, look at this. This is a prophecy of Mount Zion right here in your Old, Old, Old Testament. It says, You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place you chose to dwell in, O Lord, the sanctuary prepared by your hands. This is 450 years before anyone knew about Mount Zion, before anyone ever even entered Israel or ever entered into Jerusalem. 450 years later was when King David would come along. Hallelujah. That excites me. So God's plan was always Jerusalem. God's plan was always Mount Zion. When Jesus returns, he is not coming to London. When Jesus returns, he's not coming to New York. When Jesus returns, he's coming back to Israel. He is the prophesied and promised king of Israel. Hallelujah. Now listen, I know a lot of people don't like this whole thing about the Israel thing because it makes them nervous, etc. But you must remember that all of these promises from the Old Testament and all the patriarchs, etc. were that God promised the patriarchs, especially Abraham, he said, I'll make of you a great nation. I will give you a land as your inheritance and also through you that will be a blessing to the Gentiles. Okay? So part of the Abrahamic covenant is that they must have the land. So the fact that Israel is a nation now again is not some random coincidence, as some would have you believe. It is the epicenter of all biblical prophecy. The book of Revelation from chapter 4 onwards is all about Israel. Your Old Testament, all the prophecies in it pertain to Israel. Daniel's 70th week, so you're probably not aware of that, but as we move into the last week, it's all about Israel. The whole Bible is, 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 is Israel-centric. Okay? And it's so important that we understand this. Because if you don't think Israel is important, prophetically, you are blind to actually what's going on in the world right now. The fact that Israel became a nation pretty much in a day is an astounding miracle. And, it's, and God is bringing the Jewish people from around the world and he's bringing them back to the land so that the end time plan will be worked out so that all Israel can be saved. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a mystery as well. It really is quite amazing. God's plan has always been Jerusalem, and it's always been Mount Zion. Hallelujah. Okay, so can we have the other picture up, the, the mosaic one, please? 
Thank you very much. So, just to give you two comparisons. Now, in the book of Hebrews, I don't know if you've ever known this, but it doesn't ever talk about the temple, which is kind of odd, seeing as the temple was around at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. He only ever talks about the tabernacle. Okay, so we go to the other one, the mosaic one. There it goes. Look at that lovely picture. So, here we have the inner sanctuary, which is the bit where the glory of God rested upon it. So, the glory of God literally rested on there all the time in the wilderness. It was a pillar of fire by day and, and sorry, pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And then when that decided to move, they had to pack down everything and follow, follow the flame, so to speak. Yeah? So the flame of God literally hovered over the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Then you had the outer courts, outer court where the priest is doing a lot of his offerings and stuff like that, and people would come close to worship. Then you have another gap, and then all the people of God were around and pitched around the temple of God or the tabernacle of Moses that the centrality of them as a people was God. The centrality of that people was not golf. The centrality of that people was not football or music. I'm not picking on anyone here, by the way, I'm just saying. Uh, it, it's, it, the centrality of it is God himself. But you see, as Christians, we've been, we've been doing this, but we've been messing around in the outer courts, and God is like, guys, you are priests of Melchizedek. You can come right into my presence. You, I want you to minister before me. I want you to be changed and transformed from going into this holy place and taking that revelation and going out and changing the nations. You know what, brothers and sisters, God is going to do something outlandish in these days, that he needs to do it through all of us. It's not just the young people, because I tell you what, I'm tired of hearing this, where people say, it's all on the young people, it's all on the young people, while us adults just like, well, I'm just going to like doze off now, it's all up to you guys, off you go. No, God wants to use everyone from 9 to 99, but God wants to use us. But unless we press into that holy place, you know, time is running out. Time is running out. Hallelujah. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. You know, uh, a little while back, God gave me this prophecy called the Jenga block prophecy, which is, he said, the Jenga block, which is this game that you play and you pull out one of these blocks and try not to make it fall over. He said he was going to pull out the very thing that holds up our economy, which is the housing market. He said, I'm going to pull it out. And within two years, it will all come crashing down. And with it, it will bring down institutions and all kinds of things. So now's the time, church, to do something. Now's the time to press into Jesus. Now's the time to get right with God. You can't be in a place when these days are happening. It's like, oh, Chris, we never knew that it was ever going to happen. We didn't really, you know, how's this happening to us? You know, you know. And here's another thing. All of the economists, I watch a lot of stuff. I don't just prophesy stuff and then just like, oh, I hope that comes to pass. I actually look to make sure that there is actual historical or, or real evidence for it. And the evidence is now there. You know, there's things going on in the housing market because the housing market is six months behind actual data of the now. So everything you see on the news is six months behind, but it's now feeding through into the system. It's coming. But God wants his people to be ready. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be in a place of strength and a place of joy, not a place of fear and tumult. So anyway, so you've got the Mosaic Tabernacle. So you've got the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. Hallelujah. <coughs> But then you come to David's tabernacle. If I can skip to the other picture for it, please. Thank you. And it says, the ark is the symbol. This, symbol. this ark here is the symbol of the very manifest presence of God himself. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a symbol of national and spiritual revival. And God wants to bring national and spiritual revival to our nation. I am so glad, in one way, that the church is in the mess that she's in. 
because I know my history and I know when the church just gets beyond a joke and beyond the pale, that's when God's like, yep, enough's enough, that's it. And he'll step in, he'll intervene, he'll raise up some troublemakers to mess things up in the pot and just to get things going and that revival will come. But you see, revival won't come unless we do this, unless we come before the presence of God, unless we come before him in our praise and our worship and adoration. Every single revival has only ever come through saints that pray. Don't come any other way. No, sir. The, the church in Acts, with that, that amazing revival where 3,000 people got saved in one day. Well, how did that happen? They were, it was a prayer meeting that exploded into the church. I've looked at so many case scenarios, uh, whether it's the Hebridean revival, the Welsh revival, whether it's what went on in Azusa Street or any other revival in Africa and stuff like this. It all began with prayer. I want to end with this. I remember uh, meeting these people. They were from a place called Transkai in Africa. And they saw amazing miracles uh, and resurrections from the dead and all kinds of things. And they basically just said, they came to this church I was at, and they said, look, what we did is we just prayed and we fasted. There were people that had prayed and fasted, I think, for like 68 days, and they hadn't drank or eaten for 68 days. You know, when that happens, you think, Uh, this is a miracle going on here, better just carry on going with this. And then he said the power of God just hit that area and wonderful things took place. But then it started to wane. So what did they do? They didn't go, oh, well, it was just a dispensational move of God. It's here today, gone tomorrow. They basically got back on their knees again and they started praying and praying and interceding and worshipping God. And then the winds of the Spirit fanned up again and the fire of revival went again throughout that nation and stuff. That's how it is. It's not rocket science, is it? God is calling his people back into this wonderful place, the tabernacle of David, that we can have a national and a spiritual restoration. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray in these days ahead, Lord God, that you will revive us and restore us. I pray you bring spiritual restoration to your house, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that we can be a light to the Gentiles that we can be a light to the nations around us, Lord God, so that many will come to know you in these end days. Lord, we give you thanks, we give you praise, Lord, that we're not people of fear, but we thank you, Lord God, that you will never fail us and you will never forsake us, Lord Jesus. And Lord, you call us to walk by faith and not by sight. And all the saints give you all the praise and all the glory and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Amen.